In Ezekiel 10, God leaves. But when does he come back? And why did Antiochus Epiphanes not die when he entered the Holy of Holies? And how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? You'll find out the answers to all those questions today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, I'm a pastor, and this week I changed a light bulb. The sound booth guy told me last Sunday that the light bulb in our sanctuary had went out, and he asked me if I could replace it for him. So today I got out the ladder and I changed the light bulb. And you know, some people question what pastors do all day. They say that pastoring must be one of the easiest jobs in the world, that you only really have to work one day a week. But nothing could be further from the truth. For example, today I changed a light bulb. It kind of reminded me of the old, how many whatevers does it take to change a light bulb joke? Um, And my favorite version of that joke involves different denominations of churches. And I'll share some of those, but listen, Take these in good fun. I'm, I'm not trying to mock anybody with these jokes. I just thought they were kind of humorous. So I'll start, with, I'll start with what I am. How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is 10. One to change it, nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. Baptists. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? At least 15. One to change the light bulb and three committees to approve a change and then decide who brings the potato salad and fried chicken. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to call the electrician, one to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better the old light bulb was. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? They don't need to. The lights will go on and off at predestined times. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? They can't because that would involve raising your hands in church. And finally, how many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb? None because Lutherans don't believe in change. Now, again, uh, all those were meant in good fun. Don't, don't take it too seriously. In fact, I was, I visited a Lutheran church for something just this morning, and, uh, they had a more contemporary looking church than almost any church I've seen, period. So not honestly trying to cast shade on any of those, but uh, as I mentioned before, I'm a Pentecostal pastor. And, and one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that Pentecostalism is actually very, very close to Baptist theology. Now, we don't have as many committees, and they always beat us to lunch on Sunday, but doctrinally, we're actually pretty close. Now, whenever I say that, it confuses some people. It even offends some people, Um, because if you're in one of those camps, maybe you see a huge difference, a massive gulf between Pentecostal churches and Baptist churches. But here's what I mean whenever I say that. Um, If you were to compare a Pentecostal church to your average Lutheran church or Episcopalian or Methodist or Anglican or Presbyterian, you're going to see a lot more differences with those than you would with your average Baptist church. And not only that, there's a lot of overlap between Baptists and Pentecostals when it, when it comes to things like end times theology or baptism or communion, even a lot of the songs that we sing. The only significant difference I'd say between Baptists and Pentecostals tends to center around the Holy Spirit which is the third person of the Trinity, as well as the active presence of God in the world today. And Baptists and Pentecostals, that's where they have a little bit of difference 
in their views on the nature of the Holy Spirit today, and especially the, the role of spiritual gifts in modern times. Now, personally, I mean, I'd be totally comfortable visiting and worshiping in a Baptist church right alongside a Baptist congregation, but the reason that I lean more toward Pentecostalism is that I'm really passionate about the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our worship services. In fact, I was at a church camp uh, last week, and at this church camp, you could you could feel the presence of God more strongly than I'd felt him in years. And, and this wasn't even a camp I had gone to before. I was visiting this camp because I had just, I'd been invited several times to come down and see what it was like. Now, this campsite was out in the woods. It was next to a lake. It was held in an, an outdoor tabernacle that had no walls. Um, I mean, it, it was more than 90 degrees outside, okay? And we were just kind of sitting out there with the sun shining on us. There were fans, but uh, the, and the, the pews, they were essentially these wooden benches that had probably, they'd probably just constructed them themselves. And yet, despite, you know, despite the, maybe some of the, the lack of comforts that we're used to at our church services or our camp services, despite the lack of comforts, the service was powerful. And I was just a guest there that night, like I said, so I just sat toward the back. But man, I could feel the presence of the Spirit all the way there in the back. And I, and I wondered if I even could have handled moving closer to the front. I mean, it was like there was like there's this invisible vortex down at the altars of the Holy Spirit. And I was there towards the back. Like I said, I just kind of stood at the back and, and I just basked in the glow of, of whatever he was doing down there during altar time. And I told someone after the service, <laughs> it, the Holy Spirit must not care if you have air conditioning because he'll show up anyway. And, and that night he did. So I'm all about the presence of God's spirit. And I want God's presence surrounding me every day. And there's one chapter in the Bible that has just always stuck out to me ever since I was a young boy, and that is 1 Kings 8. And this is just as Solomon has finished building a temple for God. It was the temple. Okay, the same one we've been reading about lately in Ezekiel. Well, Solomon finishes it up in 1 Kings 8, and this is what it says in verse 10. It said, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So just as they finished moving things from the tabernacle to the holy place, boom, God is there. God's presence like a cloud filled the temple. It was a cloud you could see. I mean, God was so thick in this place that it, it it's like it manifested physically. And so from then on, the tabernacle wasn't the place where man went to meet with God. Now they had the temple. And if I may say so, I think these... Israelites would have been a little Pentecostal. So here's the significance of this place. If you remember, the tabernacle, it had this intersection called the Holy of Holies, and you could not enter it or you would be literally struck dead. And God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies the most powerfully, and they had this thick curtain separating it from outsiders. And now that place where God dwelt, now it was in a temple, a permanent structure, no longer a tent, but a temple. And in our Ezekiel studies, we spent the past few chapters in this structure. We're learning about a massive vision that God gave Ezekiel from chapters 8 through 11, and we are right in the middle of it with chapter 10 today. And, and you know that first Kings passage that I was talking about before, when the temple was dedicated to God, when the glory of God was, was so thick that you could see it, you could see the glory. Well, by the time of Ezekiel's day, that temple had been pretty much desecrated. People were worshiping false gods in the temple. The Israelites themselves had given up on God 
and were now using his house as a place for pagan worship. Now, why did they think they could get away with this? Well, as they said last time, they believed that God was gone. But that was incorrect. God was still there, but he's not hanging around much longer. Let's get into our verses today, and we'll find out what God was telling Ezekiel next. Ezekiel 10 verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from beneath the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. From where we left off last time, Ezekiel had been picked up by God over in Tel Aviv. He was taken spiritually to the temple in Jerusalem, and that is where he bore witness to the abominations going on in God's house. Now, it hasn't mentioned them yet, but as God was traveling around and giving Ezekiel a tour, apparently God is on his throne and he's surrounded by the cherubim. So now we also need to reference back to uh, episode five, and that was when we were in the first chapter of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel viewed these angelic creatures called the cherubim. Cherubim is the plural form of the word cherub. A cherub is just a type of spiritual creature who hangs around the presence of God. Uh, It would not be accurate to call them angels, Because an angel is another type, it's like a specific type of spiritual servant. And a cherub is this unique creature whose purpose, it seems to have something to do with guarding the presence of God. Now there's four of them who parade around underneath God's throne, and they have four faces. Now we'll talk more about this, but the cherub somehow, um, they rested upon these complicated gizmos that are described as wheels within wheels, and they move around on the wheels. So that's why I said they parade around. Um, I'm not just really sure how to how to describe their movement, but apparently they aren't just standing still. They're described as being kind of in a constant motion whenever Ezekiel sees them. So God instructs an angel who we met in the last chapter, an angel that, as I described him, he walked around with a clipboard. He's kind of a secretarial or supervisor angel. He didn't literally have a clipboard, but he was walking around with what it said was an inkhorn, and he was keeping records on the people in Jerusalem. So the last time, it implied that there just weren't any good people in Jerusalem whatsoever. So now God tells this angel to take burning coals and to spread them over the city. The coals are said to be within the cherubim. So this probably implies that God's wrath is going to burn all over the city. Now remember, these things in the vision, they are spiritual events but they are going to have physical effects later on. So Jerusalem's not literally going to just like spontaneously combust into flames when the angel does this. But down the road, Israel or Jerusalem, it is going to experience an invasion and it is going to burn a lot of the city down. So this stuff is a spiritual vision and later on, it's going to have a physical reality. Now, one last note is that it's very loud as all this is going on. The cherubim have wings and when those wings flutter, Ezekiel describes it as a roar. It probably sounds like a waterfall or or a helicopter. It's very noisy in this vision when the cherubim get to moving. 
I'm going to continue in Ezekiel 10 with verses 6 through 8. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim. He went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. So just a follow-up to what we read before, God had told the man to take coals and spread them over the city. And apparently the source of the coals is in a fire that's burning between the cherubim. So one cherub reaches into it and hands some fire or coals over to an angel. And, the, and this gives, it gives a little bit of detail that the, the cherubim have human hands under their wings. So now we're about to read a description of the cherubim again. And this is going to be very similar to what we studied back in chapter 1. So this may be a refresher for you if you've read Ezekiel 1 before. These creatures have four faces and they rest upon wheels within wheels. So when Ezekiel described them the first time, um, I don't know if you remember this, but what I found out was that the Hebrew, uh, and I don't read Hebrew, but this is what the commentaries told me, that the Hebrew of, of where Ezekiel described these creatures it was very emotional. It was not very sophisticated. He wasn't even sure what they were called back in that chapter. So it's as if Ezekiel was like overwhelmed by what he was seeing. Now this time, in contrast, Ezekiel is writing a bit more clearly. He's more clear-headed as he describes what's going on. So let's go to verses um, 9 through 13. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But when in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims, and their spokes, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. I'm going to stop there for a minute. So once again, we read about the wheels of the cherubim. It doesn't seem that the wheels were literally a part of their body. It was just perhaps something that the cherubim ride. I imagine it is similar to a gyroscope if you've ever looked at one of those. You can Google it if you don't know what that is. So we talked about this in as much detail as I could back in chapter one's lesson. That was when we first met these four living creatures, the cherubim. It's hard to imagine what exactly is going on, because this is not something we've seen before. We haven't seen anything like this. So I think Ezekiel is just doing the best he can. Now, one weird detail that he mentions is that they're full of eyes all around. Now, that could be accurate as far as the translation goes, but the word eyes in Hebrew, it could also mean bright and sparkly. And I think that seems to make a little bit more sense. So they could be covered in eyes, but I tend to think Ezekiel is really just trying to say that they were sparkly. So... I called this section, the wheels have eyes. Now that was because I just couldn't resist the pun. But I think they probably don't actually have eyes, I believe. Um, but it's, it's a little bit open to interpretation. I'm gonna keep reading the description now, starting at verse 14. And everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub, and the second face was a human face, and the third, the face of a lion, and the fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chibar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, 
These mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. So everywhere the wheels went, the cherubim went. They moved in perfect tandem. And I imagine that these cosmic, these almost alien type of wheels, that this was the way the cherubim traveled. It was how they moved. And the passage once again gives us what the cherubim, cherubim's bizarre faces looked like. They had four faces. They had a human face, a lion's face, an eagle's face, and a cherub's face. And now this was a slight difference from chapter one, where in that chapter, instead of saying a cherub's face, it had said it was an ox or a bull's face as one of the, the four faces. So why the difference? Well, I would actually like to do a whole episode dealing with that issue, believe it or not, because as, as you dig into why there's a change right here, you can find a whole lot of interesting stuff that makes great material for a Bible study. But there was so much information on that, I thought it would be better to save it for its own episode. So we're going to hold off on explaining verse 14 until the next time around. So today we're going to finish up chapter 10. I've got some comments on chapter 10, the other stuff going on. And, and what's about to happen next is really the most important part for today. It's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. In fact, the most shocking part of this whole chapter are these last five verses. In fact, when, when God took Ezekiel on this tour of the temple, this, this spiritual journey that they're on, the whole thing has been building up to this. So what you're about to hear next, what you're about to read if you're following along, this is the point of the whole vision, okay? Verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chebar Canal. And I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chibar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. So in those last verses there that we read, Ezekiel was confirming that the cherubim that we saw in this chapter, they were the same ones as the cherubim from chapter 1. Now this is God once again, and this is just showing where God's presence goes, the cherubim go too. So when God is arriving on the scene, the first thing you'll see are the cherubim approaching on their whirling wheels. When God is leaving, the last thing you see are the cherubim and their wheels. And that's the last thing you see here because God is leaving. In verses 18 and 19, the glory of God departs from the temple. Let me read verse 18 one more time. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. So God is checking out. He's leaving the temple. God's presence had dwelt here for centuries, but the people had turned their backs on God, so he's leaving. God is done. God has truly abandoned Israel. Back when Elvis Presley was, you know, a famous rock star, they used to use a phrase to tell people that the show was over. Somebody would come over the loudspeaker and say, Elvis has left the building. They actually had to do this because the crowd would still be going nuts long after the final song was over. They'd be cheering, they'd be shouting for an encore. And, you know, sometimes at, at these concerts, uh, sometimes Elvis would actually go out and give them an encore, but it was never enough, and the crowd just wouldn't leave. The crowd was so hopeful that they would not leave until finally someone came over the loudspeaker and confirmed that it was time to go home because, as they'd say, Elvis has left the building. 
We have kind of a situation like that here, but an opposite situation. The people were not waiting around expectantly, waiting for God, hoping to catch a glimpse of him. These people were as apathetic to God as can be. They're even using his house to worship idols of false gods. So remember what I said a few episodes ago. Just imagine you visited your church after you'd been gone for a while, only to discover that they had given up on using the building to worship God. Instead, they had moved they had moved in a bunch of objects that were sacred in other religions. They were maybe praying to Buddha or Allah or, or one of the many Hindu gods. Now, if you saw this, you'd be outraged and shocked and probably sick to your stomach just to even see something like that. I mean, even just imagining it, it makes me sick. And that's what had happened here. The people could not care less about God anymore. So he leaves and nobody even notices. Yahweh has left the building. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. If you have a question on it, just leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Now, the next time on this podcast, I'd like to stick something completely random in. Do a lesson on the Old Testament law. Um, The law is what's found in the first five books of the Bible. So what relevance do they have for us today? I'd like to dig into that question the next time on this podcast. So look for that episode to come out next week. And then in two weeks, we'll be back here in Ezekiel 10 to discuss those cherubim one more time. And there's some fascinating stuff that I found on that subject. So for today, just to recap, Ezekiel has been on a four-chapter vision that started in chapter 8. God picked Ezekiel up where he was over in Tel Aviv. It was a town far, far away, and he transported Ezekiel to the Jerusalem temple. So they're in this spiritual realm, kind of a ghostly form. The people in Jerusalem can't see Ezekiel. He's basically kind of like spying on them and seeing what they're up to. And what they were up to was idol worship in the temple. So chapter 8 revealed this, and then in chapter 9, God pronounces judgment on the people. So he has everyone in the city marked for slaughter, and that's going to come in just a few years. Now in chapter 10, God has begun to exit the temple. He will no longer dwell there as he has ever since the days of Solomon. God is on his way out. And the story of God's departure is going to continue into chapter 11, but I just want to mention, like while we're here, um, I want to mention a story that connects to this chapter, uh, a personal story. Once my wife and I, we had taken a group of kids from our church to this overnight revival. It was like a retreat thing for youth. And, and so I remember we were grabbing a bite at Subway and we were discussing like a Bible study we had been doing. We'd been studying the book of Daniel in a youth Bible study. And in the book of Daniel, there's this man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was this evil ruler of Syria He lived actually between the Testaments. Um, Daniel, the book of Daniel talks about him, but we would place him on a timeline at the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And something that he did, this is a, you know, you might not have ever heard this story. It's really cool to look into. Um, He tried to actually wipe out the Jews during that time. He was like an ancient Hitler. He was one of the most evil men who ever lived. And he carried out this campaign against the Jews for something like five years. It was like from from 170 to 165 BC. And, and one of the things he actually did during this time, he actually entered the Jewish temple 
and slaughtered a pig in there just to like thumb his nose at the Jews, at their at the at the God of the Jews, because he knew that pigs and pork that they were off limits for Jews. And and so another thing that Antiochus Epiphanes did, he entered the Holy of Holies and he set up a statue to a false god inside the Holy of Holies. I think he set one up to Zeus, if I remember right. So anyway, my wife posed a really interesting question to me while we were sitting there at that subway. She asked me, how did Antiochus Epiphanes enter the Holy of Holies without dying? Because anyone who's ever read about the Holy of Holies in the Bible, you, you know, you can't enter the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest can go in, and even that, it's like a long process just to prepare him for that, and he can only go in once a year, and anyone else who tries to go into it dies. Even if the priest doesn't follow all the procedures on that one day he's allowed to go in each year, he'll die. So, I mean, you don't just go strolling into the Holy of Holies. And so my wife asked a good question. How did Antiochus Epiphanes go in there? Because doesn't God strike you dead if you even try? And I was like, yeah, I have, I have no idea. How did Antiochus Epiphanes enter in there without dying? So here's what I did. I wrote that question down in a notebook. Um, I keep this notebook on the bookshelf next to my desk. And whenever I have a Bible-related question come up, something that doesn't make sense to me, I just write it in the book. I write the date. And I pray about it, and, and I just pray that someday God would lead me to the answer. And if I ever do find an answer to that question, I write down the answer. I write, I write down the date for that. So I'm just going to recommend doing something like that for yourself. Because often what you'll find is that studying the Bible is an adventure. And so this is a way you can record that journey. Um, and I did find the answer to this question. So it, it was actually right here in Ezekiel chapter 10. And so I've dropped a few dates in this lesson. Antiochus Epiphanes, as I said, he lived around 170 BC. Now, the glory, the glory of God, had departed from the temple hundreds of years earlier, back in Ezekiel 10. And so that is about 592 BC. So the Holy of Holies, yes, you would be struck dead if you tried to enter it, except that God had vacated the premises. The Holy of Holies had been emptied of God's presence long, long, long before Antiochus Epiphanes ever showed up. So it's really cool to me that at some point God led me to a realization of this fact, and I had the answer to that question finally. So I just encourage you, write down your questions. Ask, ask God to eventually lead you to the answer. Um, I have questions in my book that God has answered, questions I haven't got an answer to yet, and questions that might never be answered, but I'm just trusting God to, to lead me to the truth on anything that he wants me to know. So Ezekiel 10, that's when the glory of God departs. And this sets up a problem that's solved in two different ways in the Bible. It's solved in one way later on in Ezekiel, and then it's solved another way in the New Testament. So first, with Ezekiel, I'm going to go ahead and spoil something from the, the end of the book. I'm fine with doing that because um, <laughs> at the rate that we're going through Ezekiel, it's still going to be a couple years before we get to the end of the book. But just so you know, I'm going to go ahead and spoil one aspect of Ezekiel. It's in the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. The, that section of the book is actually describing a new temple that's being built on earth during the millennium. That's during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Okay, A new temple is being built on the earth at that time, and the last nine chapters of Ezekiel are describing it. And then, in the midst of all that, in chapter 43 of Ezekiel, 
we actually read these words. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So we get a reference back to this vision of, um, we get a reference back to what was going on in chapter 10. And Ezekiel says that he sees the glory of God come back. The problem that arose in chapter 10 is solved in chapter 43. God left in chapter 10. We can actually date it specifically. This was on September 17th, 592 BC. Thanks to the precise dating system of Ezekiel, we can actually pinpoint the exact date that this happened. And to this day, God isn't there. As in to this day in 2022, God is still not back in the temple. But in the portion of Ezekiel that is still yet future, it says the temple will someday be rebuilt, talking about in the millennium, and God's glory and presence will come back. Okay? And if we aren't all Pentecostal yet, <laughs> we certainly will be by then. And, and speaking of Pentecostal, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, that is another solution to this problem that Ezekiel 10 introduces. So in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the apostles and empowers them to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. You've probably heard it a lot, but Acts 2 verses 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, why is that significant to today's lesson? What does that have to do with Ezekiel 10? Because as New Testament believers, you know, we've had a few of our practices change from the Old Testament way. We don't do sacrifices anymore because Jesus was our final sacrifice. We don't have priests anymore because Jesus was our last great high priest who offered up himself as a sacrifice. It's the book of Hebrews that explains a lot of this. But what about the temple of the Old Testament? Well, let's look at what the purpose of a temple was and what the New Testament says about them. So in the Old Testament, the temple, it was this one solitary place where you went to worship God. And as we said before, it contained the Holy of Holies. It was a place where you did animal sacrifices, and it contained the very presence of God. You know, you couldn't go down to Walmart or McDonald's and find God's presence. You had to go to the temple. And it doesn't mean that God couldn't show up at McDonald's if he wanted to, but the temple, it was the place where God always was. It was the place that God dwelt. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have a single solitary temple because the Bible says that we, we Christians, that we are temples. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So our bodies are temples. And I mean, that's not just fluffy language that he's using to tell us to respect our bodies. He's making a theological statement. 
our bodies do the thing that the temple did in the Old Testament. We house the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now just think about that whenever you go about your day-to-day life, that you are a temple of God's presence. And I mean, I know there's a whole thing about being filled or baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I'm all about that. But I also just point out here, it's also true that every believer has the Holy Spirit on the inside. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So all Christians have some measure of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, you don't. I mean, it's as simple as that. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit living within them. And and some Christians do have more of the Holy Spirit than others. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I'm not even talking right here about Holy Spirit baptism or praying in tongues. I'm speaking to any believer who's listening right now. Our actions can invite the Spirit's presence or offend the Spirit's presence. So if we engage in immoral behavior, like the example in there was was getting drunk, then we chase away the Spirit's presence and we inhibit his ability to do work in our lives. We quench the Spirit. Okay, it's like whenever you fold over a water hose while the water's running out of it. And, And you've done this before. It cuts off the flow of water or maybe very little water can come out. Well, you know what? We also do that with the Holy Spirit whenever we have bad behavior, a.k.a. sin. Maybe you have trouble with certain fruit of the Spirit, like like having peace or patience or growing in love. Maybe you question why you can't find more peace in your life. But are you doing anything to quench the Spirit in your life? If you're living in sin, you're limiting what God's Spirit can do with you and through you. Ephesians 4.30, it tells us, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So he's not going to abandon you entirely. Okay, I mean, unless you put your faith in something besides the gospel, unless you do like Israel did and just abandon God and renounce your salvation. Otherwise, he is not going to abandon you. You've been sealed with the Spirit. However, you can grieve the Spirit. And you can lessen his effect and power in your life. So if you want to read a list of the ways that you can grieve the Spirit, I'll recommend just reading Ephesians. You know, I quoted it a couple times here because I think Ephesians, I think of it as the spiritual warfare manual of the New Testament. It's not a long book, but it tells you how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of that just has to do with not grieving the Spirit and, and chasing him off. So if you want to read a list of of ways that you can chase him off, read Ephesians 4, starting at verse 17. You can continue until about chapter 6, verse 9, and then it gets into the armor of God after that. But before you even think about the armor of God, it's the chapters before that that prepare you for battle, that tell you how to be full of the Spirit. So I'm thankful for Acts 2. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit is not just in one place on earth, like in the Old Testament. I'm thankful that whenever he left, he came back. And didn't just come back, but came to dwell inside me. I hope you're thankful for that too. And if you are, maybe we're all a little bit more Pentecostal after this program. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor. And by the way, 
Do you know how many youth pastors it takes to change a light bulb? The answer is, they don't. Because youth pastors are never around long enough for a light bulb to burn out. Oh, 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 oh